Theology. Don't forget to share the brew. What's up, everybody? That was my co-host, Caroline Jane Miller, my beautiful daughter. She's going to be in kindergarten this next year. Are you excited about that? Yep. Are you excited about the summertime? Uh-huh. What you going to do this summer, girl? Um, play outside with my friends. That sounds like something we all should do. Don't you think that people need to have friends in life? Is that important? Yes. What would happen if you just sit alone by yourself? That would be really sad because you didn't have any kids, um, friends. Yeah, so a good way to make friends is to go to brewtheology.org, right, Caroline? Yep. And then you can figure out how you can make friends while drinking beer in a pub. And if you don't like beer, or if you're Caroline's age and you're too young to drink beer, then you can drink coffee or tea, and you can have all kinds of possibilities. You could do it in the morning. You could do it in the evening. You can have all kinds of different brew theology gatherings. Even, by the way, if you're uh, in high school and you're listening to this, and you're like kind of cutting edge, like, oh man, I'm listening to brew theology and I shouldn't, guess what, Caroline? And Karen, my, my kid's five, and she, she's a part of the podcast at times. You can... Do a high school brew theology. And we have some curriculum that's actually going to be in the works, but I think you high schoolers can handle what we have. And then hopefully we can get some kid stuff coming. Uh, that's a little secret. I just gave you a secret, but there it is. It's going to happen, people. We're going to have family kids curriculum. And you seniors in high school, I think you can uh, share that brew right now with your friends that we have online. So go to brewtheology.org. And if you like what we do, if you love what we do, if you think what we do is interesting and good for the world, please do us a big favor. Go over to iTunes, rate it, and review it, and then share that online. We are at Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology, or at Twitter, Brew underscore Theology, and we would love for more partners. You can go to the Patreon page, and you can give as little as $1 a month or $5 a month. Uh, we appreciate all of our patrons out there, and if you want to start a chapter in your community, all that information is online as well. We have the Northwest Metro Group outside of Denver that's going to kind of come back into fruition pretty soon. Obviously, our Denver group is home base. That's where the people on this podcast uh, are from. And uh, we have the Jersey Boys who've been rocking and rolling. They've got some new exciting stuff coming on the podcast this summer with the one and only Dr. Catherine Keller. That's right. That's another JC in the house, just Catherine. We've got the Jacksonville crew. They're, man, those guys are doing some amazing stuff. Uh, I always, I look from a distance online and I see what these other groups are doing. And I, I really just want to get on a plane and go, go visit you guys. So I love what I'm seeing in Jacksonville and in Jersey. Uh, we also have Mark out in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. He just has hit, got his social media up and running. He's going to get that started late summer in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. There's also Chaz out of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Man, we were going to hang out at the Wild Goose Festival, Chaz. We were. Maybe next year it's going to happen. So speaking of the Wild Goose Festival, if you go to wildgoosefestival.org, you can register there and you can get tickets. And I've got a promo code for you because you're listening to our podcast. We're going to be on the Goose Cast stage. We're also going to have a demo and we'll have a booth on the main road, so stop by us. But if you want 25% off, enter the promo code GOOSECAST18 and you get 25% off at the Wild Goose Festival. By the way, we also have, close to that area, going down south, we have Atlanta Brew Theology. They started the last few months. Also, above me a bit more, in Greeley, they have Weldworks. Yes, they have Weldworks. But there's also the Greeley Brew Theology community that meets at Weldworks. And I'm jealous of that because that's some of the best beer in Colorado. Two other 
potential brutheology communities that are going to be happening later in the year. Tally, that's right, that's what I call it. Tallahassee, Tally, and also Orange County. These are all secrets. But you know, if you start sharing the love online, more and more people will have their own secrets that then become live and public knowledge for everybody. That's, uh, I love, man, I love what I get to do. Janelle and I enjoy this. Uh, we're gonna have some fun this summer at Wild Goose. We're gonna take a little bit of a break from our Denver community on Thursday nights, mainly just to kind of transition into the next season. But if you are in Denver still, we got other things going on because we're more than just a pub group that talks about nerdy stuff. We're going to the Dead Sea Scrolls exhibit one day. We're gonna be in a Rockies game one evening. We're gonna have a potluck barbecue gathering at my house. Uh, we're, uh, I think there's a few other things. Oh yeah, we're doing the Pride Parade uh, sometime in June. We're actually having a, we're having a baby shower for the guy that edits this podcast, Dan Rosado, having a baby girl, he and his wife, Edith. So congrats to them. And then Janelle and I are gonna be in Asheville in August with Trip Fuller from Homebrew Christianity in their 10th anniversary party. This is gonna be a celebration, a three-day event. We're going in a night early, and um, on this date, if you actually go to theologybeercamp.com, you can learn more about that entire event. Also, we are doing a a pre-gamer. So 9 a.m. the day of the event to 4 p.m. at the venue at Habitat Brewery. Uh, It's only 45 bucks. You can come in, we'll drink some coffee in the morning, and Janelle and I have a whole day planned for you before Theology Beer Camp. So thanks, uh, Trip and Homebrew, for letting us partner with you guys in that. What else do we have going on? I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm losing my mind right now because it's Friday and I'm doing this intro. But all I got to say is that Dan right now, is he's listening to me, wondering what he should edit, take out, delete, maybe add in. I don't know, Dan. What do you think? Dan's rolling his eyes right now because he's like, Ryan, you were at six minutes and we haven't even gotten to part two with Christy Donner. So, enjoy. If you haven't listened to part one, go back to part one. This is Christy Donner again, the executive director of Colorado Criminal Justice Reform Coalition. And uh, this, is, this is some knowledge for you. Uh, this is relevant. And I think it's all theological. So don't forget, share that brew. Peace, guys. Well, you made me think of this thing I heard on CPR that was about a prisoner that got out and had nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it happens so happens that you're quoted in the article oh. um, talking about what it is that they're facing when they get out um, and what resources they're given. So for our listeners, if you just type in CPR and look up um, the article on Kevin Montiero, you can read about what this is like in Colorado and what um, happens when someone is released from prison and the resources they're given right out the door. And this story stuck with me because um, he ended up um, asking an older couple if he could use their phone. And they were gracious enough to help him with that and to, I believe, they took him where he needed to go and then continued to follow up with him. So it's a five-part series on our our CPR station that you can still access. Mm -hmm. But Christy is quoted in the article. I don't know if you remember much about that particular story, but could you just tell us a little about what is it like when a prisoner is, when the door is opened Mm -hmm. and they're shown the world again, Mm -hmm. what... What are what do they have at their disposal as tools um, to re-enter this world that we're in in, mm-hmm. in 2018? 
Well, a lot of it depends on who is out here waiting for them to come home. So if people have family or close friends um, that can be their parole sponsor who can provide them with support and a place to live and kind of a, a soft landing, um, then their experience can be a little bit different, right? They're still going to have challenges of finding a job. You know, there's still a lot of of um, stigma associated with hiring people with felony records and criminal records and things like that. And so I think, you know, that that part is always a challenge on it. And if they're ongoing you know, whatever whatever problems they had before are probably waiting for them when they got home. Do you know what I mean? So it's not like it fixed anything. Yeah. Um, so they'll have to deal with a lot of that as well. They might not have an ID. I mean, just imagine. Um, they're in a time capsule too, depending on how long they were down. You know, with Kevin, he was down a really long time. You know, my colleague um, also did 10 years. One of the people that I work with at CCJRC and, and she just was, when she came out, she was like, I didn't understand. Like, where are the pay phones? Uh-huh. Like, you don't even know how, what, what they didn't know what tr the trash cans didn't look the same. You know, we don't even think about how quickly wow. our society is changing with technology. And it, the, that pace really escalates um, as technology kind of moves faster and faster and faster. And so just like landed on the moon on that, on that. So that's even in the best of circumstances, right? There's about a quarter of people who are leaving um, prison that are homeless because they don't have anybody. And so they are literally under a bridge or they're at a shelter. And the Department of Corrections is trying to put them up in these flea bag hotel. I mean, they're trying to do what they can do, but they don't have a lot of really good options either. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly when out of jail, I mean, you have, you know, Denver County Jail has what, 10,000 people coming in and out, in and out, in and out, cycling on that. Um, some of them could be, you know, one and done. Do you know what I mean? They're just, yeah. it wasn't a big deal. They're fine. They got their shit together and they're moving on to people who are extremely seriously mentally ill, who have been cycling in and out of jails because there's only two things that are open 24 hours a day, um, um, uh, emergency rooms and jails, right? So um, where they can be um, without their meds, they can be without a place to live. They have no idea how to put one foot in front of the other. They don't even know where to start. It's right. so overwhelming. Yeah. Right. How do you even start? But fortunately, the thing that's really great in Colorado is I'm really proud of, of particularly our nonprofit sector um, that has really stepped up into this space. Um, there are um, some of the, the, like probably one of the flagship reentry organizations in the country is here in Aurora called the Second Chance Center. And, and it's um, the executive director is a gentleman by the name of Hassan Latif, but within his staff, he's the president of our board. So I'm going to give him some props because yeah. we've been, we've been working together for a long time. Um, I think between their staff group, they had something like 70 or a hundred years or something like that of incarceration time. So people walking in that, they knew what people needed because they had walked that walk. Mm -hmm. um, and we're starting to see more and more people that when they come out and they want to give back to the community, that's one of the places where they want to plug into is to, is to be involved in helping others. Um, and so they're really providing a lot of leadership in this whole field called reentry. Um, from a community's pr perspective, and and um, and so it's getting better, um, but there's still a lot of folks that that housing is the biggest issue. So you can have okay. a job. Um, it's not it's not that much different. It's a two percent unemployment, right? People can are getting jobs, um, but they can't afford any place to live, right? 
So assuming a landlord, a lot of these apartments and stuff like that have a no felons need not apply, except they want you to apply because then they get your $55 or whatever it is for your application fee and then tell you after the fact, oh, by the way, we don't rent to felons. Um, And so that's one of the biggest problems that we hear over and over and over and over and over again is um, housing. People can't get stable housing, really unstable in their housing, even for folks that have it. There's couch surfing. You're staying with their aunt for a couple of weeks or a month or two. I mean, it's really, yeah. it's really rough. And for women, you have to add, because I want to talk about the women. We don't yes. talk enough about women who are in the system, you know, very, very high rates of co-occurring disorder, both substance abuse and mental health. Um, but for them, a lot of it is their children. You know, the, the majority of women that go to prison were single moms. And so there's a lot of pressure um, for them to reconnect, they want to be, you know, they want to get back into their children's lives and being a mom again, and and they can get overwhelmed and with do that. Do many and of them have to often get their kids back out of foster care? Is that part of this story? I mean, some do. I mean, fortunately, because I'm not, a, I'm, you know, I'm not a huge fan of our of how our foster care system raises or doesn't raise or impacts children. Um, and that's a broad statement. I know there's right. like great people doing great work, but for a lot of kids, it's not a good experience. Right. Um, and so, um, some of the kids might be in foster care. Some of the, they might've had, um, their parental rights terminated. And so even that's not an option for people to reconnect. Yeah. Um, most often children are bounced from one family member to another. And so they're just really, and they get separated a lot of times. So the siblings lose each other, not just their mom. Yeah. Stick with the mental health thing for a minute. I'm old enough to remember the bad old days about institutions, mental health institutions. They weren't even called mental health institutions, mental institutions. They were terrible. They were mm-hmm. just, and the stories that went on about all the horrors going on inside there prompted releasing them, getting mm-hmm. them out of the institutions. That doesn't work out so well either. Do you have mm-hmm. any suggestions for what we do? Halfway homes, small group homes? What? I mean, we did reinstitutionalize people with serious mental illness. We just did it in the context of jails and prisons, not within a health, even as bad as it was, at least it was within a health. It's super complicated because we actually do need, there are going to be people that need to have some place that's long-term care, right? That we just don't have. And, and controlled in some way. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and supported in a very substantial way. Right. So there's that avenue. Then there's folks that that we're you know, they might need um, intensive but shorter term, you know, restoration services or, you know, getting people back on meds and then they can, you know, balance and, and move on in their life and stuff like that. Um, and, and, and so what is that short term and what are group home? There could be people that need more support, but they're going to need it over less support, but they're going to need it maybe for life. So. What does that bucket look like? What is that option? What does that door look like? You know, um, and all of it is accessing care and, and where people can have ongoing um, access to, to professionals that, um, and mental health care that, that is effective, which, you know, we could have another hour talking about that. Um, so it's kind of an all of the above, but that was the thing that was such a, which is such an interesting debate here at the legislature this last session, because it was really in, in clear relief, that debate this session. So um, there were, f- um, the state is getting sued um, and has successfully gotten sued um, for keeping people in, and I'm not going to get this right, but let me, let me just give you my shorthand on it and then y'all can correct me. But it was some, it's something to do with keeping people in the state hospital too long 
or in jail too long before they have their competency evaluations. State law requires X number of time. We don't have enough beds at the state hospital. We don't have enough clinicians, whatever the, 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 the dynamics are, that, but people were going a really long time and they're sitting in jail. Uh, disability law advocacy firm filed a class action suit they won. State's got to fix it. They got to fix it, which means they have to have these within 30 days or 60 days or whatever the time period is. So state's getting sued, fixed it. They're out of compliance with the, with the court order right now. Can't make those timelines. So there are two debates going on. So there was one debate, or actually three. One debate was we need $30 million to open up another state hospital. We need to have more, more beds. We just need more mental health, serious long-term beds from people. Now, that went down in flames. I was like, ah, too much money. On the other hand, there was a debate around, well, we need more prison beds. Here's a plan to open up a thousand more prison beds for $11 million. And that got through the Senate. We were fighting that one all the way. Um, got through the Senate, died in the House in the last couple of days of session. And then there's the conversation where there were four, what are we going to do about the fact that the state is going to start paying tens of millions of dollars in fines if they don't solve this mental health problem? So the prison went down. The mental health beds went down. Here we are. Literally, this was the conversation two weeks ago. And we're still at that space where we're, what is the answer to that? So it's, it's alive and well. This is not hypothetical. This is not ideological. This is not theological. This is real world, real life right now. Just to keep leaping, leaping from one huge problem to another. Back to prisons. You said your statistics showed 2,000 some prisoners 20 or so years ago. Mm -hmm. 20 to 21,000 now, I think yeah. it is. Um, can you take a guesstimate at what percentage of those you think do not really need to be in prison? And do you have al immediate alternatives other than you know, keep kids in school and that kind mm -hmm, of thing? Mm -hmm. Are there things judges could do now when someone's been found guilty of a crime mm -hmm. other than sentencing? Mm -hmm. Well, it's hard to say how many people, like I can tell you just, um, Let's see, how do I want to answer this? Because it's a great question. It's a complicated question, though. To, I mean, I could throw out something that's just sort of jargon or whatever. Um, we probably could s easily cut our prison population by a half to two-thirds from, wow. from a public safety perspective, right? Like, they are not um, uh, serial criminals that are, are dangerous. These So... This is, again, where the criminal justice system fails in, in, in the recite. So a third of everyone that goes to prison um, was, that was admitted to prison last year was a, a revocation from parole for noncompliance, right? So they didn't have a job. They didn't have a place to live. They, didn't, they, they got high, you know, whatever it was. They didn't report to their parole officer on time. So they're violating a condition of supervision. They're not committing another crime. But it's, but it's a violation, and in, in, in this punitive cycle— they have to ratchet it up so they can do intermediate sanctions or they can say do better or blah, 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 whatever. But at some point in time, they say, well, we got to pull the trigger. You know, at some point, we just have to pull the trigger, which always means somebody's going in a cage, right? So that's a third. That's a third right there. There's another third that's the same story on probation revocations. So on the front end, so probation is an alternative to prison. Those two groups of human beings alone are people going to prison for technical violations of supervision, not additional criminal activity. 
So that's where we have don't have the support. People don't have the jobs. They're high. They're getting high. And we don't have an answer to what do you do? Because in a criminal justice context, that's a crime. That's a violation. And sooner or later, we have to pull the trigger. So that's just that two group. There are people who are dating. I have met people who I am very, very happy are far away from their ability to interact with other human beings because <laughs> they're dangerous. And given the opportunity, they will continue to be dangerous. That's not who I see most of the time. That's not who we're dealing with. Um, and, and so that's, we could have a substantially smaller prison population and probably healthier communities, safer communities, if we invested in the things that we've been trying to work on and scale it up. That'll be the big challenge for any organization like us or you know, a, the group of us, the all of us, right, who are, who are looking and in, in working in, in a social justice kind of um, framework. Can we get anything to scale? Because this is a, 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 an undercurrent that's pretty strong. So one of the weird things you hear in churches sometimes is, well, we don't need welfare if churches would just do what they're supposed to do. So what can community organizations like churches do to help these two-thirds to either meet the conditions that they're under or to help prisoners that are coming out of the system to be successful in what they're doing? Um, I, I can't even imagine. Uh, you, you, you're nodding, Ryan. So you're yeah, saying because you hear I, that I've a lot heard, of churches. I, oh yeah, I've heard we this. Don't need I've heard this quite a bit my entire oh, life. Oh, noblesse oblige. There we are. Yeah. Let's go to a 19th century philosophy, yep. 18th century philosophy. Exactly. So there's two. So a ick, like, <laughs> like what? I don't know. Like the level of ignorance in that. But okay, I'm gonna just like ick. Okay. Um, sec- so let me <laughs> respond. So there's two things that I think, um, well, it's not just the faith communities, it's anybody who's interesting. So there's this sort of direct service piece that we think of, right? Right. Um, whereas people are coming out of jail, people, they need help. So churches help or food banks or they need, they need help. So there's that, that, right? We can continue to do that. And churches are known for charity and, and, and there's this whole new movement around toxic charity, which the faith community should really be looking at um, because I think there's a sort of a propagation around charity and, and that's actually pretty toxic and it, and it, and it keeps people trapped um, mm-hmm. because it's more about people feeling good about themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's just call it right. Mm-hmm. Not all service is in the service of other Preach Sometimes it, it's sister. in service, service of self. So anyway, so we'll just, with that caveat, there's that, that piece. But the thing that is most important, I think, and then I'll circle back to that welfare uh, comment, is the structural piece. There's a policy. This, you know, reality is not just arbitrary. Just, just we didn't wake up today. Like, how do we get here? This is structured, structured in policy, culture, right? Um, language, narrative, how we talk about things, and budgets. So that's where I would love to see the faith communities engage significantly more um, is in this structural piece. Like we need to have a different drug war. We need to have, you know, um, we need to confront this racial disparity and, and the racial profiling and the racism, right? That's, so that to me is where I have not seen the faith community except for some specific faith leaders. Mm-hmm. But as a whole, faith communities, I haven't seen particularly engaged in that because they're too busy helping, right? Right. So you know, okay, I get it. Um, but going back to the welfare thing, like if churches did their job, we wouldn't need 
welfare is a prime perfect example for this because the churches can't do the direct service and help. Like, we need to actually have living wages. Yep. Like, yep. can we talk about living wages? Mm-hmm. Right. Can we talk about affordable housing? Can well, we talk about Carter? Well, okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but do you see what I'm saying? That's right. that's where, where people can get, get stuck right. into the. And I would just ask people, how well did they think that's working? Yeah. Well, Ryan and I got into a little spat after you left because I was, I, I we did we did get I it love was a spats. little one it was the, the, a small one. This, this is for everybody to hear out right. there. Yeah, <laughs> a spat. But I, uh, one of the things that your talk kind of helped me question is I did prison ministry off and on for a couple of years, probably in the mid two thousands, mm-hmm. and going in and leading a retreat or leading a, a weekend of reflection doing a concert in the yard, doing concert for people in solitary. Mm-hmm. Um, that feels really, really effing useless in the face of all of this. Completely mm-hmm. useless. I'm not saying that people don't deserve soul care mm-hmm. while they're mm-hmm. in prison. That's absolutely fine. But the fact mm-hmm. that I didn't know any of this mm-hmm. along with going into prison. Yeah. I mean, the, the the most memorable thing I remember was learning about how people sneak stuff into prison and what orifices they use. Mm-hmm. That's not helpful information in fixing anything. Right. Where I should have been learning about the social mm-hmm. justice issues surrounding mm-hmm. this as part of my participation in bringing soul mm-hmm. care to people. And so... And, and Ryan was kind of pushing back on me, like we need to do soul care. Well, That's yeah, because I, because I, I, yeah, because I often we will throw out the baby with the bathwater, right. so to speak. And I feel like you had said along with those, that, yeah. those were your words. And yes, both, both are important. Yeah, and I might not have been so generous on Thursday. <laughs> but, it's, okay. it's okay. It's okay. Well, the but, thing that, but the thing that's interesting is if we actually walked our talk, right. We wouldn't have this situation. We wouldn't be in this situation. So some of that soul care has got to be also soul reflection, and what we accept, and what questions we don't ask, or what we in- choose not right. to see, um, because there's a- an awful lot of of um, non questioning, um, and yeah. then we want to jump in and help, and that's where you're going to be. Um, because I agree. I mean, like, it, it, there's so many different ways to help. But we can't, and I think the soul care can be important that people believe, I guess, I, I haven't seen that many prison ministries that were, like, worth anything, to be honest with you. They want to come in and tell people they're saved or they're a princess right. or whatever. Um, Cut their hair. Just pray away the, you know, the demons or whatever. And I'm oversimplifying, you know, dramatically. Um, but could there be, um, things to teach and convey? Absolutely. That come from a spiritual place for sure. That could be helpful. Um, but I think, but there's a, there's a a real world for people too. And and it's, and it's, they say when, you know, stomach empty, hundred problems and stomach full, no problems. Right. Uh, there. Well, when you don't have to like go through double doors to get into your house, you don't think about it when you're locked between two double doors trying to go into a prison, mm-hmm. you start thinking about those things. And I, I just think that it would do you know, like a small step would be for anyone out there doing prison ministry, be teaching your congregation uh-huh. about what's going on. Not just well, what's your commitment to the or, person after they're released. Right, like this exactly. whole idea where you just sort of parachute in behind the walls. 
Um, but once they get out, you're like, I'm sorry, we can't really help you. Yeah, I don't. You're a felon. I don't understand that model. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you're gonna do, if you're gonna go, you know, in, then what's the what's the path out? Right. In, into that connection because those messy. because being connected into the community, whether it's your faith community, whether it's job, volunteer work, whatever, that's a really important part of the social fabric, and it's also a way for people to feel connected to the community because a lot of times people can be, in, and I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but but people can be engaged in criminal activity because they feel really disconnected. Like, I don't right. care if I rip off your house because it's your house and I'm not connected to you or your house. In fact, I might even hate you because you got what I don't have, right? So there's that. When people start to feel connected, and that's, again, again the counterproductive things that we do with this banishment model, which is right. really essentially what we've done, um, is is remove people from that potential for connection. You can't find a job, can't find a place to live. Nobody wants to deal with you because especially if you were convicted of one of the deadly sins, right? right? Seven deadlies. Um, we really don't want anything to do with you. Um, so then there are way to connect again. So if you're not connected, you can't do soul work. So, yep. but those, those connections have to be authentic um, and not just sort of being preached at. Yeah, say that again, just so everybody hears it. Well, it, I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but the people who've been able to really help me in my life were people who I thought cared about me. Yep. And when people didn't care about me or I didn't get that, that vibe that somebody cared about me and they just wanted to preach at me or teach at me, then I, I was like, it, it didn't really have the same kind of resonance. Even if what they said was, was exactly what I needed to hear, I, I wasn't going to let it in in that way. So that, I think, is the first step is that authentic connection. Um, and then how does that, how does that, how is that demonstrated in a tangible way? Yeah. Um, so anyway, and, and that's a two way street, right? You can have expectations. The other thing that I find where people are that make me nervous is when they have no boundaries. Right. Right. And yeah. they have no boundaries or like you can say, um, like I'm not a nice person. Like people come in and they're like not doing what they need to be doing. And they're looking for somebody who's just going to give them a pass. I'm not the person for them to come to. Right. Because that's not how we operate either. We right. do hold each other accountable. It's just, we don't do it in that way of, of just sort of judge, you know, unilateral judging. This right. is like, no, we actually care about you. And I actually think you can do better than what you're doing. So, so stop the, stop the racket. And we'll often say like when we, when we're working with people, we'll be like, you think they're done. And if they're done, they're done. Then they're ready. If they're not done, we don't waste our time. If people are just looking for the next way to, to, we're not the right people. Now, Hassan and those guys, like, they probably could reach them better than I could. Right. Do you see what I'm yep. saying? Mm -hmm. um, or make that connection better than I could. But yeah, it's, it's, sometimes it's weird. I'm, I'm like, wow, does, does, you know, nice Christian lady realize she's getting played? Most of the time, no. Because they're not worried about that, you know? And I'm like, oh, Lord. Oh, sweet, nice Christian lady. You're getting played. So eyes wide open. I'm a big fan of eyes wide open. You mentioned real briefly, we need a different kind of war on drugs. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear your opinion on what kind of war on drugs we need. Oh, I would decrim. I would personally decrim. I'm 100% for that. I would that. decrim. All of these drugs. <laughs> and then how so, do we... So here's this, where this could go. So decrim is, you can say decrim, which means we're just not going to penalize it. But they're, like most of these drugs are, were, were created in a lab. So cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, opi these, these are all pharmaceuticals. So Canada is ex experimenting with um, uh, doctor-prescribed heroin, not just methadone. 
So there's so there's this whole field of medicine called uh, medicated medication assisted treatment. So we think of methadone, we think of suboxone, those kinds of things, um, and that's if people are not using. So the question is, what do you what are you going to do if people actually still want to use? Are you going to do that in a controlled and prescribed environment? So that I think is worth um, having a conversation about. Um, I think as many pathways as we can have for people to get into recovery, the better for them and probably their loved ones. To be honest, I don't know a lot of happy addicts. To be honest with you, um, you know, I've never met anyone who said my life was in the toilet until I met until I you know met coke or meth. You know, so let's be honest about that. There are things that are really innovative in the harm reduction that are called safe injection facilities, where a lot of the challenges that people are using in alleys, they're using in bathrooms and libraries and King Supers, and they're not disposing of needles safely, so that creates a health issue for the general public, um, or they're likely to more likely to have, um, you know, blow a vein or have because they're doing it in a rushed way, um, they're more likely to overdose and die. Um, because it's not in a prescribed environment. So there's an effort here in Denver by the Harm Reduction Action Center. I'm going to give them a big shout-out because they are really the leaders in this thinking um, to, to propose for Denver to allow for a safe injection facility so that's monitored by health professionals and people get clean needles and they get clean kits and um, they have um, naloxone on, on site, they have medical staff on site. But we'd have to, our, our doctors would have to get over themselves too. Right, because they're like, oh, I want to prescribe that poison. It's like, well, yeah, you do it every day. So let's have a different conversation. So it would be those kinds of components to get really serious that we're going to completely embrace harm reduction as our dominant, um, not abstinence based, and try to keep the community and them as helpful and, or, I mean, as, as as healthy as possible, and and, and as many on roads into uh, on ramps on into recovery as we can, whether it's trauma based, not just behavioral based. Because that's the big thing. I mean, I have yet to meet a woman that's, and I'm probably a man too, although I've not had as many conversations, but I have yet to meet a woman who who wasn't, um, uh, who, had, who didn't have a history of drug abuse that had been sexually or physically abused as a kid and as an adult and then often over and over and over again. So, you know, how do we move much more, not into seeing addiction as literally a, a, a side effect of trauma? And and almost most of you know most of those women I was telling you about that are in prison were victims before they were defendants, but we've completely forgotten the fact that they have that victim history because we've labeled them a criminal. So we, I mean, real world is much more complicated than 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 our rhetoric right now. Does this harm reduction model segue into the public safety element that you've mentioned a couple mm -hmm. times? Yeah. You want to yeah. tell us more about well, that? Well, no, I mean, if you think about it, if there was a, a way for people who were going to make that choice anyway. Right. Let's be clear. They're going to make that choice anyway. And if there was op opportunities for them to be able to, um, through insurance, um, get a get a prescription and it's administered. And when we have a lot of people that are overdosing right now because drugs are cut with fentanyl mm -hmm. um, and you have no idea what the dose is on that. And so people are dying because they're the, the fentanyl is is pretty pure. I mean, we had Eric Bowling's kid that just died up at CU Boulder. Right. Mm -hmm. Um on it and and from what i've understood a lot of that's because whatever he took was laced with fentanyl which is really powerful so you would take that out because it mm -hmm. would be under a very controlled and prescribed environment yeah so what are some other things that um you do in public safety oh in public you so then you don't have people so you don't have people do in, engage in criminal activity for the drug seeking you don't have people that are shooting up in public 
um, so that if they're disposing of needles, you have hep C, HIV, transmission concerns, right? But most of it is you take, again, if you take the, the drug war out of it and the cartel criminal black market aspect out of it, that's a huge benefit for public safety yeah. in that regard. Now, the question that I would have is, okay, so the people who want to make money on black market stuff, where do they go next? Because it's not like they go away. And I'll give you an example on this. So on Amendment 64, right, everyone thought, oh, this was going to be a great thing. Um, we're going to reduce the drug trafficking and all that kind of stuff. We're going to reduce the prison population. A lot of that was actually just propaganda because we don't have a lot of people going to prison for marijuana. We have no one going to prison for marijuana possession. So now what we're seeing after that is that we are being absolutely flooded with meth right now because the cartels have changed, right? Because they're going to backfill the money that they um, didn't make, uh, aren't making anymore from, from marijuana sales. And so we're really, I mean, that our felony drug filings have gone through the roof in the last five years. Um, so... Again, it's not like they go away. You're like, where will they go next? Sex trafficking. I mean, there could, there's, you know, there's a lot of, com you know, there's a lot of ways that if people want to make, because there's always going to be a lot of money in that. And that's always going to be a draw yeah. for some folk. So, yes, and. I don't think there's a silver bullet, I guess, is my, is my answer. I don't think we should overestimate what the impact could be, even if something as dramatic a public policy shift is to, to, go to a decrim harm reduction model on drugs. I think we would still have other things we have to deal with. So as we end our time together, I was wondering, I am always the hope filled guy looking for like, give me something here. I was last week, I was at another table with a guy who was probably even more depressed in a way than me, but needy's like, what, where's the hope? I need to have it. Cause that's we're wired the same way. So can you just give us like maybe two success stories from your last 20 years specifically maybe in the last few years where you're like, I'm proud of my organization for getting this done. Oh, I have a million examples. Great. See, this is good. See, be so this is what happens is people, people start hearing this and they, and they, they just like, they feel overwhelmed with despair. But, but if you can give us some, yeah, just give us a couple stories. Well, I mean, I can give you a lot of stories. Um, part, part to the hope piece. Um, um, so my dad was a physicist and he was a weapons developer. And so we used to have a lot of conversations about physics. Um, not that I've retained a lot, because that was definitely not something my eight-year-old brain could manage. Um, and my 51-year-old my brain is no better. But he said, it's, everything is changing. There is no such thing as status. There's no such thing as stasis. So things are changing. So the question is, uh, what direction and at what speed? So... Things are moving. We, there's always, there's no thing like, it's not like it's so rigid, it's stuck, we can't make the move. It, things are changing. Anyway, that's the natural environment. So that I think I share with you in terms of that hope, like, I don't even know if it's hope. I just know things change because that's a natural law. So I don't, I don't worry about that. Um, and I don't worry about that too much because we often don't know what the impact of our actions is now. It could be generations. So you don't know what seeds you might plant. And I just let go of the need to have some certainty um, or even hope. I, I wake up and do this because um, it matters. It matters to me. And it, it'll matter to me if, if uh, for the first 10 years we were doing this work, we weren't making it. I mean, the prison population was skyrocketing. We were doing nothing. We were getting nothing. So if I had measured my commitment by that, I need to have something tangible change in this moment for me to still continue to be committed, I would be doing something else. And I would have been doing something else um, for a long time. 
So that's my only pushback. What I can say is um, um, things are changing and they're moving in a pretty interesting and exciting direction right now. And that's not to say that there are challenges everywhere. And especially right now, doesn't it feel like everything that's not working well in America is just like up in our face 24 seven, like, like, like a lanced boil in really ugly, smelly kinds of ways. Orange um, ways. And so, um, and I think people are awakening to that. And I think it's, it's taking the, some of the, if we choose to see, it's taking some of the blinders off of some of the things that we had sort of um, maybe pacified ourselves with thinking things were better or we had made more progress or any of those other comfort, like we need to be comforted in the struggle. Um, so, but we, you know, six prisons have closed, prison population declined 15%. Um, we're making, um, we're investing tens of millions of dollars in new ways um, to, in this community-based approach that's trying to, and we're grappling with issues at a deeper level. Um, you know, certainly there's an awful lot of conversation around race and racism in America right now. Um, I think it needs to get deeper. I think it gets particularly when the, within the white community, we keep thinking, um, that that's something that black or brown or red or yellow people have a responsibility to fix. It's really us to fix. Um, we're a, a lot of the cause of that, not that all bigotry, um, the bigotry can exist across any ethnicity, but it's certainly, uh, white supremacy and the cultures of privilege. That's, that's like. That's my lineage too. So, um, but you see more conversations and people more. I, I, I don't even know how to not be hopeful, right? Like I'm in this, if I'm in it 25 years up to my neck in the muck of this, the people who have died, the people that are going um, into cages for the rest of their life, for the kids who are traumatized um, and who knows what will happen with them in all of this. If we can get up every day and say, Whatever contribution we're going to make, we're going to make it no matter how little or, or, or big it is, then that's what I would share with people. Not so much give me the story of hope um, as much as it is just get, in, just get in the pool. Come on in. The, the water's fine. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Christy. You're welcome. This is great. And to Elizabeth, Randy, and Janelle, so uh, if you want to learn more about uh, this organization, what's the website? ccjrc.org ccjrc.org it's an org not a com and then you guys have a facebook page as well mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and twitter yep and we have two other campaign specific websites so the uh, transformingsafety.org is another where people can get in the deep weeds about that um, all one word and we also have takecarehealthmatters.org which is all things you might want to know about medicaid um, health and behavioral health for justice involved folks so we have all three of them because that's how we roll. Good stuff. All right. This was part two, Transforming Safety. And if you want, like this episode or any of our episodes, you can go to iTunes. Here's, here's what I think. Okay, iTunes is fine and all, but Janelle and I have beef about iTunes because they start deleting old episodes. Yeah. Yeah, I know. iTunes is like the, the mega, whatever, corporate, this and that. But you still got to go there. You got to rate it and review it and share it because that's how you get listeners. However, our host is Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, Podbean. They have every episode. So this will be episode 84 and 85. This one right here is 85, part one and part two. So go to Podbean and share it from there. Give Podbean some love. How about that, the little guy? You like that? Yeah, we should, for sure. 
right. And we're also we're at, at Brew Theology on Instagram and Facebook and at Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. Give us some love. Give Christy and her organization some love too. Yes. Peace. All right. Cheers. 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 Cheers.